Okay, hey, this is Stefan Kinsella. I'm doing part three of my tutorial, and uh, the number of intrepid people tuning in has declined from week to week, which shows how fascinating IP law is. But still, I thought it would be good to get this um, recorded for future use. Um, this will probably be Kinsella on Liberty episode 412, 312, wherever we are. Um, uh, Kinsella IP Law Tutorial Part 3. So in the earlier uh, episodes, I talked about uh, just a general overview of what IP law is, and then patents in Lecture 1, and then in Number 2, I, I talked about copyright. And today I'd like to talk about the remaining types of IP. I'm not going to go through them exhaustively. Uh, because it would be tedious, and that's not really the point, but it's just to kind of give people a vocabulary for d uh, distinguishing between types of IP law. Um, and so as I mentioned in previous lectures, I'm on slide one right now. I'm going to go to slide two. Um, I'll talk about slide two in a second. But um, as I mentioned um, in the last lectures… Um, there are like four main types of so-called intellectual property. That's patents, which has to do with inventions, copyright, which has to do with creative or artistic works, and then there's trademark and trade secret. And then there are other subsidiary types that are pretty new inventions uh, – not inventions, pretty new uh, legal innovations in the last 50 years. So let's talk – about trademark next, but before that, I had a couple of questions uh, between the last talk and today. Um, I wanted to mention something. I think I talked on this uh, briefly, touched on this before. I, I tried to emphasize that all IP law is domestic, just like all regular law is domestic. So if you own a home in America or Australia or Poland, then the local domestic law, which in international law we call that municipal law, uh, is what governs your property rights, say, in your home. Uh, and if you are you know, assaulted in an act of crime, your rights in your body or your rights not to be assaulted are covered by the local criminal law. So all rights in a sense are domestic or, or, um, uh, or municipal or local. Um, now, in the case of tangible resources like your body or a car or a house, it 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 wouldn't make a difference about uh, as to whether this right was recognized internationally or domestically because there's only one, you know, you only want, own one car or one body or one house. So the relevant law that that um, has jurisdiction over that is the one that has an effect. It doesn't matter whether it's based upon your your city or your county or your state. Or your country, or your region, um, or or internationally, there's still only one piece of property to protect. But when it comes to international, uh, I'm sorry, to intellectual property, then we get to this sort of weird situation where, uh, so you have people accusing China of violating uh, American or Western uh, IP rights. So they'll say that China steals IP. Um, now. They're they're just technically legally wrong about this because China, well, China as a country or Chinese companies can only violate Chinese law. They can't violate. There is no international law of copyright or patent. There are international treaties that China and other countries have signed on to, and these treaties require these countries to implement in their national legal systems, in their municipal law, um, 
patent and copyright law and trademark law, which adheres to minimum standards. And most of them do this. Like they sign on to the Berne Convention or the Madrid Convention or the Paris Convention, the Paris Cooperation, the Patent Cooperation Treaty or the Paris Convention or WIPO or GATT. And they comply with it by they by enacting local laws, and then they enforce those laws in their courts. No country's laws are perfectly enforced in any realm, in murder or or uh, trespass or or IP infringement. Um, but China has an IP law. America has an IP law. Europe European countries have IP laws, and they all enforce them to varying degrees of of efficiency in their own in their own. Government courts. So it's just wrong to say China steals uh, Western IP. It's like literally impossible. At most, you could accuse them of not having sufficient IP laws, but they do because they're in compliance with the Bain treaties. Or you could say that they don't they don't enforce their laws um, as efficiently as the Western countries do. But you know, what's the difference between seventy percent and sixty two percent enforcement? Uh, they're all inefficient, and they're all um, just different ways that inefficient government courts enforce their and, and their legal systems enforce their state laws. So now someone had a question. Um, I had mentioned that since the United States uh, acceded to the Berne Convention in the 1980s and since West other Western countries and most countries in the world now are parties to the Berne Convention, that you no longer need what's called copyright formalities to have a copyright. Uh, which means you don't have to put a copyright notice on the work, and you don't need to register the copyright in the in the national um, copyright excuse me agency in your country. Um, and someone said, I, I I read somewhere that um, you need to register the copyright in America before you file a lawsuit. Is that correct? And yes, that is correct. And that doesn't contradict what I said. To have a, an enforceable copyright, you don't need to register it. Um, you have a copyright from the moment that you fix the original work of expression in a medium. Like you know, this is as soon as you write it down. Basically, you don't even have to make it public. Excuse me, I'm copying. I'm coughing here. Uh, you don't have to make it public. That, that is, you don't have to publish it. It can be secret. It could be a private manuscript. Might be harder to prove then, but theoretically, you know. You have a copyright as soon as you fix it in a medium of expression, a tangible medium of expression, um, and you don't need a copyright notice anymore, and you don't need to register it. Now, before it, as a technical matter in, a, in the American system, and I'm not sure how the other uh, countries' um, legal systems work, but before you file a lawsuit in federal district court in the United States accusing someone of copyright infringement… You do need to file a copyright registration in the Copyright Office, uh, the Library of Congress, and that takes like $25 or something. It's very cheap and simple. It's just a form. It's easy. It's just a formality. It's sort of like before you sue someone, you have to send them notice um, or something like that. It's just a formality. So you do have to register a copyright in the United States before you file a lawsuit, but you don't have to have a, a registration or you don't have to file a lawsuit to threaten someone and to extract royalties from them. Which is the predominant way that copyright is used, or to send a copyright takedown notice to YouTube and make them take down a video, something like that. Okay. Now, I'm going to go to slide three now. Uh, again, this this tutorial series, I've talked a lot in other lectures and 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 and, and writings about um, um, 
the legitimacy of patent and copyright and other types of IP law from a libertarian and economic point of view. Um, but in this tutorial series, I just want people to understand what the IP law, what the light, what the laws are. And I've already talked about patents, which cover inventions, and copyrights, which cover um, uh, creative works. Um, and I've already mentioned that um, uh, the patents, the problem, uh, patent and copyright are the two big ones. That's why I mentioned them first. They're the ones that do the most damage. They're the ones that get the most attention, and they're the classical types of IP. Um, and they both originate in statute, and uh, patents distort and impede technological innovation. They impoverish the human race. That's why I focus on them. Uh, that's why we don't live in a Jetsons world <laughs> or as much of a Jetsons world as we could. And copyright distorts culture and freedom of expression in the press and threatens internet freedom. Okay, And it's increasingly – copyright is increasingly used to, um, to uh, impede uh, – Practical freedoms like the ability to repair your 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 owned property like a, an iPhone or a tablet or a computer or a tractor or a car because they have uh, they have software in them now in the form of ROM or chips or or, or some kind of little computer in them which and, and that software is covered by copyright and so the uh, the companies that sell these products use their ownership of the copyright to restrict what you can do with them which you know makes the products less valuable to you because now you have to pay money to an official licensed retailer or someone to repair it or something like that so uh, you see how copyright um, is also harmful in the practical space all right slide four <clears throat> i already talked about types of ip uh Copyright and patent are the two main types, and in the United States, they're both federal or national, and there is no state version of that because the, the versions of, uh, of state law that did exist before uh, the United States Constitution was ratified in 1789 were basically preempted either by the Constitution in 1789 or by the Copyright right. and Patent Acts of 1790. Does someone have a question? Sorry. Okay. Um, Now, the other two types would be trademark. Now, trademark is a state and federal hybrid system, which I'll get into in a minute, and trade secret. Those are the big four types, which is mostly state, although there's federal aspects. And then the other specialty types are boat hole designs, which is sort of a type of copyright. Um, semiconductor mask work protection, which came about in the 80s, which was a special congressional law passed in the United States to protect the semiconductor industry because it originated here, and you had Texas Instruments and IBM and Intel and these kind of companies. You have database rights in some countries, um, which uh, was needed because in some countries, the courts would hold that copyright doesn't extend to databases because copyright only extends to original creative expressions, and a database is just a collection of facts. Uh, even, even despite how much uh, – no, no matter how much time it took to assemble the facts, like let's say you made a map of the earth or a database of every you know phone book, something like that. It's very useful. It takes a lot of effort to do it, but there's really nothing creative about it. You're just assembling facts. So copyright doesn't apply to that in every jurisdiction, so um, database rights were created to handle that. In some countries, I think the United States has never done that yet. Moral rights are sort of related to copyright, but it has to do with your in the the inalienable rights of the creator of an artistic work to be recognized as the creator, like that's attribution or credit. 
and also to prevent it from being destroyed later, um, uh, like a mural or something like that on a building or on a refrigerator or whatever. Uh, then there's special protections, as I mentioned in previous lectures, like newspaper, like a you know a special government seals, like the National Security Agency seal or the CIA seal, and then of course you know in certain certain cultures and countries and religious systems, or just practically you you know you can't reproduce certain religious accounts or figures without uh, being in jeopardy. Um, and then there are proposed rights in different countries for. Uh, sort of a quasi-intellectual property right in newspaper headlines or linking to them or fashion designs. I believe that Canada is freaking out right now because Facebook is threatening to block Facebook from Facebook's feeds if Canada's new law is going to force Facebook to pay a fee to uh, to companies whose headlines it links to or something like that. So um, you have extensions of these. And then defamation, which is not usually considered to be a type of IP right. I'm going to go into this later and explain why I think it should be and why it's it, it's illegitimate just like all forms of IP are. Okay, but so today I'm going to talk about trademark, trade secret, and defamation if we have time. Okay, going to slide five now. Okay, trademark. We've talked about patents, which have to do with inventions, practical devices or processes, copyright, which is creative or artistic works like a novel or a painting or a movie. Um, a trademark uh, – and by the way, there's something uh, – in America, we use the term intellectual property to refer to all these types of rights because they all have to do with legal protections for creations of the intellect, things that are not tangible, corporeal, material things like boats or cars or land or sticks or dogs or cows. <clears throat> but intangible things that are the product of the mind. Uh, my understanding is that in Europe, the term industrial property is sometimes used, but I think it doesn't cover copyright because that's creative. It covers the patent and trademark and maybe trade secrets because they have a sort of industrial use. But I think the term is blurry, and maybe it includes copyright now because it's come to be seen as a, um, a rough European substitute for the American term. IP or intellectual property, so industrial industrial property or intellectual property. Anyway, they all cover all these types of things. Copyright is one of them too, usually. A trademark, we're all used to trademarks. A trademark is a, is a mark. I mean the word is in there, the word mark. It's a symbol or a name or a word or a device or something used by a person or a company to identify the source of goods or services. Okay, so um, you, you know you give you give your product or your company or your brand a name or a mark to distinguish it from the ones from other companies, um, so consumers can tell the difference, right? And so you can stand apart, and so and, and it goes along with your reputation. So it lets consumers make decisions, and it, and it allows the companies who own these trademarks, <coughs> excuse me, um, to. Um, Um, to um, to profit off of their reputations, right? That's the that's the idea behind it. Okay, slide six. Um, in the U.S. in 1995, the United States Supreme Court, in the Qualitex case, you know, kind of explained the whole purpose of trademark law as being to prevent others from copying a source identifying mark to reduce the customer's cost of shopping and making decisions. 
to quickly assure the potential customer that the item with the mark is made by the same producer as others similarly marked in the past, um, and to help the producer re, you know, reap the rewards of building up a reputation for quality in that given product line. Okay, so that's the purpose of trademarks. <clears throat> I had uh, some different ways of using trademarks for brand names or for slogans or for logos. I give here on slide seven some examples like Coca-Cola, which is a word mark. That's just Coca-Cola is the, the word mark which identifies products made by and the brand of the Coca-Cola company. And then their slogan, it's the real thing. That's trademarked. And then you could have um, a logo like their always Coca-Cola thing or even the shape of their bottle. Right? Um, you could have other things too like sounds or colors. You know, like this pink color for some kind of uh, insulation for your attic, or maybe the yellow color for a certain type of sweetener, or the or the pink color for a packet of sweetener, or blue for another type. You know, so you have different colors. You have scents and smells, motions, holograms, configurations, or shapes like uh, like the Coca Cola bottle shape, which is somewhat functional but somewhat identifies. The Coca-Cola brand name. And I gave in slide eight, I give some other examples. The Apple, the Apple symbol, the Coca-Cola um, word mark stylized, not just the words themselves, but the way it's it's you know, sort of the typography, Amazon's logo, Google, Samsung, McDonald's, Microsoft, the Nike swoosh, Ford, ignore USBTO. That's where I copied this from or one of their slides. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> and a recent, a recent trademark dispute was uh, just recently. Um um, this is slide nine. Um, there's a famous uh, um, guitar brand called Gibson, and they have something called the Flying V. You see the picture at the bottom here. The Flying V is the top one, and the bottom, the bottom one, I forgot what it's called. Um, and then a company called Dean made similar shaped guitars, and of course, they were sued by Gibson for trademark infringement. Even though they were making an actual functional guitar, the idea was that you can't sell a guitar with that shape to the bottom part um, if it because it would make people think it's a Gibson or something like that. So um, anyway, now in the United States, as I mentioned earlier, um, patent and copyright are both federal laws. They're national, and in most countries are national. Most countries have a unified national system anyway. So in most countries, all these laws are national. Uh, in federalist systems like the United States, um, where the private law is largely made by the states and not the federal government, <clears throat> there are certain fields of law where the federal government um, has dominance or has preempted the field. So, for example, in antitrust law in the United States or in, in tax law, maybe um, there's only federal law. There's no. Um, there's no. Um, there's no. Well, I don't know if there's state antitrust law, but anyway, the federal antitrust law would do would dominate. Um, let me let this guy in. Um, and that's that's what's happened with patent and copyright because there's the clause in the Constitution, which I mentioned earlier, which I repeat here, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8. It grants to Congress the, the power to promote the progress of science, which means the, the practical knowledges, and the useful arts, which meant creative works. Um, actually, I got that backwards. Science meant the creative – Creative works of of of, uh, of novelists and painters and people like that, and useful arts inventions. So anyway, the point is, patent and copyright 
the acts in 1790 passed by the Congress were were authorized by the Constitution, and that's why those are federal or national fields. <clears throat> now, in the 50s, up until the 1950s in the United States, trademark law was mostly a state-based thing because it was sort of like you know laws against murder, marriage laws, divorce laws, community uh, 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 a property law; those are all handled by the states. Every state, like in all the, all the fifty states in America, had their own little independent systems, mostly common law based. But you know, it was the private law comes from the states, and the feds only can interfere in the areas they're given permission to do that. So, trademark law was one of those, just like defamation law and trade secret law. These were all state based laws, <clears throat> and they all came from the common law of England. And the states were the ones that in, in the United States, when they seceded from England and went from being colonies, embodying the common law in their in their colony courts to becoming states with their state courts, they just kept the common law tradition alive. And they kept the private law of property and crime and torts and you know um, things like that, including defamation and uh, trademark and trade secret. So that's why these things were state laws. Well, there was a, a movement towards to, – to, to make the, the law national and uniform across the country in the 50s, just like patent and copyright had already been nationalized in, in 1790 because of the constitutional grant. But there was no constitutional grant for the Congress to enact a trademark law. So instead, the Congress uh, relied upon um, – the Commerce Clause power, which they've relied upon many, many, many times in the last hundred plus years to enact laws where there was no express authority given to them, no power enumerated to enact a given law by saying that, well, under Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3, Congress has the power to regulate commerce. Okay, So they started using this in the 1930s after the Great Depression to regulate um, – like. There, the famous case was Wickard v. Filburn. Um, one of Roosevelt's laws said that you know we're trying to control prices by limiting production of wheat or something like that. So they made it illegal for someone to have a farm and to grow wheat on his own farm. And he sued, saying this violates my property rights, and the federal government has no authority to to do this. And the court upheld the law in Wickard v. Filburn saying that the Commerce Clause gives power Congress the power to regulate commerce. And by the way, this this power was only meant to basically establish a free market, a, a, a free trade union within the United States, which is one reason we the United States became prosperous is because we had this vast um, you know free trade union among the states. That's what the Commerce Clause was meant to do, and Congress could make the trade regular and regulate it and make sure like things were being passed fairly between the states, but basically it established a free trade zone. Um, but Cong uh, Congress and the courts seized upon this grant of power to say that, <clears throat> well, that means Congress can do pass any law that affects commerce, that any law that regulates any activity of any American company or citizen that affects commerce that goes between – between states, and if if someone grows wheat on their own farm, then they don't have to buy wheat to feed their own animals. And if they don't have to buy wheat, some of that wheat would come from producers in other states, which would cross state borders, which would be interstate commerce. So therefore, Congress has the power to 
make it illegal for you to grow weed on your own farm, which is obviously ridiculous. But the point is the federal government has stretched that commerce clause to become virtually a general authorization of power, which is how they enacted the Lanham Act, which was the, the, the federal act uh, giving a, a federal uh, uh, form to trademark law in the United States. But because it wasn't uh, as clean or clear as the authorization for copyright and patent, uh, they didn't preempt or get rid of state trademarks, so they both exist now. So we now only have this two-tier system, just like we do with SEC uh, securities regulations. We have what's called the blue sky laws in the United States where every state has their own regulations about securities, and then the, the SEC and the federal government regulates them as well. So, of course, you just have to hire lawyers who can do both, and so you pay twice the fees, and lawyers get, get rich off the results. Same thing with trademarks. So. If someone wants a trademark and they're in Texas or California or Colorado or wherever they are, you know, they hire an attorney and the attorney does a federal trademark registration and a state trademark registration. Okay. So anyway, that's just the that's just the lay of the land. We're on slide 11 now. Okay. So according to the original common law in England and in the, in the United States states, common laws arise just automatically, sort of like copyrights do. But copyrights arise automatically because of the Copyright Act. By virtue of compliance with the Berne Convention, which says that there are no formalities and they arrive. In other words, it's statutory, but it's automatic because of the statute. Common law rights in trademarks arose automatic, or automatically by use. Just if you start using a work, a, a name in public to identify your good, then you have a trademark in it. And then there are certain legal remedies the courts came up with for you to enforce your trademark. <clears throat> Nowadays, in most states, you could also register like an official registration procedure. Just like in the old days, you could get married with a with a, with a procedure, or you could have what's called a common law marriage. Just if you hold yourself out as married, you're considered married. But most people, to be safe, they use a statutory marriage form, which the government says if you use this form, that counts. Just like a power of attorney, there's something called a statutory durable power of attorney. Whenever the legislature gets involved and they pass a law saying. You can do it the old way, which is recognized by custom in the courts and the common law, but here's an official way that we will bless for sure. Lawyers and people tend to gravitate towards that because it's it's, uh, it's safer because you know that it's going to, to work in the courts because no one can deny it then, and that's what happens with trademarks. So in the United States today, if you want a trademark, what you do is you do a trademark search in the federal database usually, and if, if it looks like there's no one using the same mark, then you file a register. You file a, a trademark registration in both your local state uh, and federally, so you have sort of two. Now, federally uh, in the United States, uh, the uh, trademark office is maintained by the USPTO, United States Patent and Trademark Office, which uh, handles the um, patent system and the trademark system. Copyrights are handled for some reason by the Library of Congress's um, of the Commerce Department. <clears throat> Then you can use your filing in a given country like United States or Brazil or Poland or wherever, and then you can take that and you can file in other countries based upon this treaty called uh, the Madrid the Madrid System Treaty. So same thing with the Berne Convention for Copyrights or the Paris Convention or the Patent Cooperation Treaty for Patents. There's ways to take your local filings and extend it to other countries in the world. Okay. <clears throat> Now, when you have a trademark, what this means is that you are so you're said to be it's the company that uses the mark to identify their 
their brands or their company or their goods and services in commerce, um, they're said to be the owner or the holder of the trademark. And the rights they have is the right to prevent other companies from using the mark in a way that would be likely to confuse consumers. Now, think about that. Um, people that usually object to my criticism of trademark law would say something like, well, so you're in favor of consumers being defrauded. So the presumption of that criticism or that objection is that trademark law is – the purpose of trademark law is to stop consumer fraud, but it's not. As I just said, the trademark law doesn't say you can't defraud consumers. Trademark law says that you can't use my mark if it's likely to, cons to confuse consumers. Okay, so the first thing is confusion is not a clear – I don't even know what confusion means, to be honest. It's it's not fraud because fraud has a clear meaning in the law. And by the way, we already have fraud law. So for people to say we need trademark to stop consumer fraud, well, why can't fraud law do it? We already have fraud law, and we have contract law. So trademark law obviously does something different, and it does. So it stops consumer confusion. Okay, and number one, you don't have to, and you don't have to prove consumer confusion. You have to prove likelihood of it. Okay, so number one, we're we're not approving fraud, and we're not proving that there is fraud. We're only proving confusion, and we're not proving that there is confusion. We're proving there's a likelihood of it. And the third problem is that the person who files a lawsuit, the plaintiff, is the trademark holder. It's not the defrauded or confused consumer, because there might not be a confused consumer. Like there's you, if you only have to show a likelihood of confusion, well. For a given consumer, either they're confused or they're not. So if you can show proof of that, they're confused, even if you consider that to be a lesser standard than fraud. Okay, So the whole thing is, is, is not a fraud standard. It's likelihood of con consumer confusion, um, and the problem with this is that um, um, so, – so let me give an example. Okay, we just Greg just joined. So, as an example, um, um, someone buys a a knockoff Rolex watch for twenty dollars from the back of a van from some guy on the street in New York City. They're on vacation there, and they say, "Hey, I want to buy a, a fake Rolex watch." Now, everybody knows the real Rolex has cost two thousand, ten thousand, twenty thousand, fifty thousand dollars, or they're crazy, right? So. No one in the world is buying a Rolex watch for $20 and believing that it's really a Rolex watch. They know that they're getting a fake. They know they're getting a knockoff, and they want the knockoff because they won't be able to afford a real one. <laughs> so that consumer is not defrauded, and they're not confused. <laughs> There's no fraud at all, and yet Rolex would be able to go to court and say that, well… We have a competitor selling a watch that says Rolex, so clearly there is a likelihood of consumer confusion because consumers are idiots, and uh, so we're going to get a court injunction to stop that, and we're going to seize all these fake Rolexes and destroy them with a steamroller and a big demonstration in Times Square and have it on CNN, and everyone's going to run scared, and we're going to stop competition that way. That's all fine and well and good, but that's not… 
has nothing to do with fraud or even consumer confusion. Okay, so that's the main problem ask, with trademark. Sorry. Can I anyone? ask a question? Yeah, go ahead, Matt. Um, so would you relate that to the idea of standing? Like maybe in, in this case, the company suing another company, it's kind of dubious whether they would have standing in a normal situation, but by trademark law, they're given standing. Absolutely. Um, and and if, if we're talking about a, a fraud lawsuit, the it's not just standing. I mean, it's it's the person with the actual injury is the is the defrauded consumer. So it would be like if I went to a fake McDonald's, uh, expecting I was going to get a McDonald's. Uh, I mean, you're not going to have a lawsuit for a five dollar hamburger. So let's imagine I, I hired this McDonald's restaurant down the block to cater my son's birthday party. Okay, I gave them five thousand dollars to cater this party, and they brought a bunch of hamburgers. And then it turns out that they're just a fake McDonald's. Okay, I might have a breach of contract claim against them or maybe a fraud claim. So I would be able to sue them in some kind of court uh, to redress my the damages because they defrauded me. And by the way, this is why this thing is so um, impractical because these companies would be sued, and they would go out of business. They wouldn't be able to get investors in the first place because they, they wouldn't be able to make it. But anyway, let's. the point is… The defrauded consumer is the one with the actual injury. A third party has nothing to do with it. Like my neighbor couldn't sue on my behalf because they didn't like, you know, they were uh, unhappy that <laughs> their neighbor got mm -hmm. defrauded. Mm -hmm. But this is what happens in <laughs> trademark lawsuits. The trademark law gives the right to sue to the holder of the trademark. Um, in fact, I have a quote here from um, uh, a fairly mainstream article on page slides twelve. You know, there's a guy. He's he's kind of trying to sort out like. What's the nature of trademarks? And he 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 kind of repeats in legal language what I said earlier. Like people think it's about the consumer deception, but it's kind of only ambiguously related to that because you don't have to show deception. You only have to show, or even fraudulent misrepresentation. You only have to show you know likelihood of confusion, and also um, uh, it's the, the recovery is by the third party. So yeah, so the trademark law. Give standing, as you could call it, to the holder of the trademark, which doesn't, which is not being defrauded or even confused. Um, in fact, if they weren't confused, if they if if they were confused, they wouldn't be able to file the lawsuit. The fact that they're filing the lawsuit knows shows that they're not confused. They <laughs> they know the difference. <laughs> uh, but uh -huh. <laughs> um, but um, not only is it like wrong to give them standing, but it actually. It, it takes away the rights of the consumer who is defrauded. Like it's transferring their right to sue. You know, in in most private law systems, if if I'm harmed by someone's tort or offense, and I have the right to sue them, let's say I have a potential million dollar claim against someone, but I don't have time to wait. Um, maybe I'm 95 years old and I don't have time to wait. I might sell that right to another company who who would collect. For me on their behalf, maybe I'll sell it for sixty-seven cents on the dollar. Like they'll give me six hundred thousand dollars, and then they take the right to sue, and they, you know, they take the risk then that they're going to either get a million or nothing. But the point is, I would have this this economic right, this right to sue, and I can use it, I can get rid of it, I can compromise with it, I can take it to court, I can sell it to someone else. But trademark law basically takes that right away from the defrauded consumer. And it gives it to another company. 
So it's a taking a mm-hmm. property from the from the actual victimized person. Now, a lot of defenders of trademarks say that well, that's the most efficient way to do it. Like the most efficient way, it's like a class action idea. The, the most efficient way to have trademark rights enforced is to take it away from the consumers who are actually victimized and give it to the one company who has the financial incentive to pursue it. Well, I don't know. You could I, you could give the give the financial incentive to me. Give everything to Kinsella. I'll, I'll file lots of lawsuits. I'll make a billion dollars. Like the whole thing is 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 totally unjust and ridiculous. Anyway, mm. th- does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. Okay. Uh, 12, 13, I've already gone through this. All right, so that's trademarks. Any any remaining questions about trademarks? Otherwise, I'll turn to trade secret. Yeah, real quick. Um, you explained that um, with the Rolex example that. The company would be able to seize those, you know, knockoffs. Would the company be able to seize those from people who bought them as well? Um, I'm not 100% sure, but I think technically they could. But as a practical matter, they go after the big targets, right? So um, um, they go after the the non sympathetic victims, like you know, the, the shady, the shady knockoff companies. They're not going to go after you know. There might be a thousand people in the country, or ten thousand people walking around with a, with a fake Rolex. Um, I think theoretically they could like you know you could file ten thousand lawsuits against you know some guy walking around Las Vegas with a fake Rolex watch, trying to pick up hot chicks. <laughs> I guess. I just I, I think that they they focus on the big fish. Okay. And you're saying that a. Imagine a person tried to make a claim that they bought this Rolex. You know, maybe they didn't buy it out of the back of a truck. Maybe they went to a jewelry shop set up somewhere, and then maybe they later claim, "Oh, I found out this wasn't real." I mean, I guess that would be a normal fraud case against the knockoff company and not a trademark violation. Actually, I, don't, I mean, my view is um, you would have a contract claim. Or maybe a fraud claim based upon the comp- the person you bought it from. So if the pawn shop misrepresents it, it says this is a real Rolex, and you buy mm-hmm. it from them, then you have a claim against them. Either a contract claim if it was sort of an honest mistake, or a fraud claim if they were like trying to deceive you. Um, mm-hmm. But you couldn't sue the original company because there's no privity of contract with with the with the manufacturer. Like there's nothing inherently wrong with making a fake Rolex. Um, just like there's nothing wrong with you know, a woman wearing makeup or a guy putting on, you know, combing his hair nicely or, hmm. or some, or someone have wearing a push-up bra, you know, you, 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 there's no general right to be free from exaggeration and puffery and even dishonesty. Like hmm. it, the, the point is lying is not a crime. Being deceptive is not a crime. It has to be an act of fraud and an act of fraud means you use an, a deceptive communication as a way to obtain possession of someone else's own resource without mm. their genuine or informed consent. That's really what fraud is. Mm-hmm. But mere, mere dishonesty or puffing or lying is just you know, it's part of life, you know. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Let's go to trade secrets now. Now, trade secret is a, is a weird type of law. Uh, it, it does have roots in the common law like trademark does. Um, at first glance, you might have someone saying, Kinsella, 
how can you libertarians oppose trade secrets? What's wrong with keeping a secret? I agree, but do you need a law that says you have a right to keep something secret? No. All you need is a reasonable legal system which gives everyone property rights in the autonomy of their bodies. Like in other words, if 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 I'm free from compulsion or aggression, then I can keep whatever secrets I want. You know, it's just like if I own a computer or if I own a home, then I don't need a separate right saying I have a right to keep a, a piece of paper with words on it in my home. That like that's covered already by the fact that I own the home. I like once I own once I have secure ownership of a home and privacy within that home, I can do whatever I want within it. I can I can I can walk around naked. I can have a, a tanning salon. You know, I can I can I can do meditation. I don't need special rights for all these things. I can do with the thing that I own, which is my body and my resources, right? And by the same token, um, if I have property rights in my body, which means I'm free from compulsion, no one can. Put a gun to my head and say, Kinsella, tell us the secret, you know, tell us your theory of gravity or whatever my you know, or, or or tell us the the plot of the novel you've been thinking of in the back of your head for 10 years, then I can keep anything I want secret. It's not a property right, it's just a practical consequence of the fact that I have the ability to control what I do with my own body and my own property. Um, so a trade secret just means that you have a company. Either an individual merchant or you know a larger company, which has certain things that it does, which are not generally well known, widely known. They're proprietary to the company. You know, uh, Coca-Cola might have a certain formula for its beverage. Um, some chemical company might have a certain proprietary process of mixing these chemicals to make gasoline. And this technique or process. May not be patentable because it may be old, uh, but it's but but knowing it is useful and keeping it secret is useful because it gives them a competitive advantage over someone else. So that's what a trade secret is. A trade secret is information that you have that is not public, widely known publicly, and that knowing it and having it be secret gives you a competitive advantage over other people. There's lots of things like that. This is what life is like for private people and for companies, right? So that's what a trade secret is. Now, by the way, in in, in the United States, trade secrets are governed again by state law and most states have adopted this the definition given by this Uniform Trade Secret Act proposal. Um I think 48 states plus DC and other things. So so it's most of the country. It's not federal. There is a federal a law which makes it criminal to try to get people's trade secrets, so there, there could be criminal penalties. But anyway, if you look at the definition here, so it's it's this information, right, which gives you an advantage, which it's a trade secret if the owner takes reasonable measures to keep it secret, and then you derive value from it not being known to people. In other words, you, you, you get some advantage. Now, what's interesting is that it's something you take reasonable measures to keep secret. It doesn't say that it's secret. So that's why, for example, if uh, if if Apple is making iPhone number 17, right, and it's got some new feature, and only Apple knows what that's going to be, or only Apple knows how to make it, or they know the internal schematics or something, or the composition, something like that. That information is valuable to them because they can use it to make the iPhone 17. It's 
It has something to do with making the product be what it is and be valuable. And keeping it secret is an advantage because it makes it harder for other people, other companies to duplicate that feature right away or ever in their competing, you know, Android phones or whatever, right? So that's a trade secret. But and 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 if some employee or there's some mistake and the secret slips out, like let's say the Coca-Cola secret formula or the KFC levels of herbs and spices were leaked tomorrow, at a certain point, they're no longer a secret. They're publicly known. So if something is publicly known, it cannot be a trade secret because it's not a secret. But as long as it's still relatively secret and like only the original company knows it and maybe a few other people know it on the outside, then as long as you've made a reasonable effort to keep it secret, then you can go to a court and say, I have this trade secret in this information. Here's my proof that I, I'm the owner of the trade secret and that it's a secret still because it's not widely known yet, but I, we did have a company that's guessed it or that we had an employee that left and he went to a competitor, and he's told this competitor how to make this iPhone feature, but they haven't leaked it publicly yet. They can get a court order, an injunction to the third party. Not to use the information. That's the that's the essential libertarian problem with trade secret law. It's not that you can keep things secret. Anyone's entitled to keep things secret. But trade secret law says if you try to keep something secret and if you fail and if it starts to be leaked, then you can go to court and get an order to keep it from being leaked further, even if that order is is against third parties. Right, so I would have little problem if the order was against an employee who had left you, and the employee was violating his his contract with you, which where he said he would keep a secret. But once he makes the information public to a third party, that third party is in no privity of contract with you. So that's ultimately the problem with trade secret law. Um, and I've got some examples here on slide um, fifteen. Uh, but uh, the federal aspect is called the Economic Espionage Act of 1996, which means that if you steal trade secrets, it's it's actually a criminal offense. There could be federal prison time. Um, um, yeah, and there's some examples where um, uh, like the FBI or, or, or some law enforcement has like raided people's house. Like I think some guy lost – some Apple employee left an iPhone 4 on a bar stool sometime one time, and some guy picked it up and found it, took it back to his apartment and took pictures of it and put it online. And then Apple sent the police to his apartment uh, to take it from him, which I think they have the right to take the phone back because they own the phone. But they don't have the right to tell him not to use information that he gleaned from looking at the phone that they left – that their employee left in public, which is what trade secret law would allow. Uh, all right, we'll go into other things next, but any any questions about trade secrets before we move on? All right. Since that's the the fourth type of IP law and probably the, the most boring of those four, and we have no questions, and then the remaining are even more boring, like boat hole design, semiconductor mask works. Um I'll just skip over those unless anyone has any questions, but just keep in mind these are all special types of laws, and other countries have variations of this. I'm not aware of any international treaties beyond the first three, uh, patent, copyright, and trademark. I'm not aware of any international treaties requiring countries to have equivalents of trade secret, boat hull designs, mask work, database rights, moral rights, things like that. 
although some of the GATT and WIPO things may have provisions about that, and some of the American uh, bilateral investment treaties may have requirements requiring their partners to have something like this. I'm not sure. It's not the point. Most countries have all this anyway, so that's the problem. Quick question. Now, go ahead. Um, do you think a stolen valor would would fall under intellectual property? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think you you I I uh, to the extent that there are laws about it, which I think there are some laws that have something to do with that. I think you could probably characterize it as a type of IP. Um, but again, to the extent that you use stolen valor, and uh, by the way, I think this means like pretending you are like. You know, a warrior and the, or a veteran or something like that, and getting special favors or treatment or status because of that. I, again, to the extent that you're doing something legally wrong, it's because it's fraud, right? And if it's fraud, then that should be covered by fraud law. Um, but yeah, I think that that would not be a bad look. If you stretch these, if you stretch my concept, if you stretch the idea of IP broadly enough, almost every bad state law could be viewed as a type of IP. So, for example. Um, I characterize patent and trademark law as negative servitudes or negative easements because it gives the holder of the of the IP right a negative veto right over how other people use their resource their property. So, like a a, a patent can uh, Apple's patent lets them tell Samsung or Motorola, you can't make a phone with your factory and your materials shaped like this. Right or a copyright lets the copyright holder tell another publisher you can't use your book and your ink to make a book with this shape with this arrangement of words on it. So that's a negative servitude. I mean, if you stretch that concept far enough, you could say that like you know um, all the bad laws like uh, 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 the drug war or or. Or, or conscription, like so. Those laws say that if you use your body in a way that we don't like, a drug law says if you use your body in a way we don't approve of, we're going to put you in jail. I mean, you could call that a, a negative servitude over someone's body, but at a certain point, we already have class. We already have categories for this. It's called slavery, or you know, something like that, or aggression. So I think we should reserve the IP categories to this unique area of different types of legal systems. But yeah, there is some affinity with um, stolen valor and with the NSA seal stuff and with the religious symbol protection, et cetera. Okay, so basically I think I've explained to this point in the first two talks and this one uh, the main types of so-called recognized intellectual property, patents for inventions, copyright for creative works, trademarks for sources of identification for goods and services, trade secrets for proprietary information companies try to keep secret but might fail to, and then the special types like semiconductor mask works for integrated circuits and um, um, boat hull designs and databases and moral rights and things like that. Um, now, there's one final thing I'd like to talk about, and that's defamation law. So defamation law is a, another type of law that arose on the on the common law in England and other countries. Um, uh, and defamation is a broad category. The subtypes are libel and slander. You've probably heard libel because libel is the most common. Libel is the written or permanent form of, of, of defamation. 
uh, in which it, nowadays is uh, most most defamation is, is is libel. Slander would be like an or like you, you just tell someone something verbally or orally, like um, uh, you you, slant, you you slander someone's reputation by saying something about them. Um, those are usually harder to prove, and it's not permanent because it's sort of ephemeral. It's only in the memory of the person who hears it. So usually most defamation suits are libel suits. Um, and so it's, it's like you know the New York Times published this article, which which uh, said something false about my my character. Um, and the, the reason it has to be false is because truth is a defense because if it's true, it's not defamation. So even though some true some statements about someone's character may damage them, if they're true, you're said to be have a privilege to say the truth. So, you know, I might not like it if if you reveal to the world some some unsavory fact about my private life, but if it's true, then I've got to take the consequences. Um, if I sue you for defamation or libel, then you could defend by saying, "Yeah, but it's true." That's why you have these lawsuits where the defendant usually says, "Okay, but my defense is that what I said was actually true." Right. Now, there are other exceptions to defamation liability uh, in addition to truth. Um, so there are certain privileged things like statements before Congress or parliaments or in court. You know, if a witness on the stand says something, or if um, uh, if if a congressman makes a speech and says something, they usually can't be attacked. They have a, they have to be free to say what they what they believe, or if it's mere opinion or if it's satire. You know, if I say that. I think you're a jerk. That's not really a statement of fact. It's just my opinion about you. I don't. I'm basically saying I don't like you, and I have the right to not like you, and I have the right to say that I don't like you. Now, if I say that you're a child raper, a child rapist, or if I say you're a pedophile and you're not, then that would be potentially defamatory, right? And by the way, the burden of proof and the, and and the standard of proof are different in different countries. In the U.S., it's one of the best. And from our point of view, because in other words, it's hardest to prove defamation here because of our strong First Amendment protections. But like in England, uh, UK, it's 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 easier, which is why sometimes lawsuits are filed there, like the one about the Holocaust with the Rachel Weiss movie. I forgot the name of it. Anyway, um, some recent big cases in the U.S. I mean, Alex Jones just lost a big case about the Sandy Hook school shootings where he. Said it was a false flag or something, and he, um, uh, I think the plaintiffs won like a billion, a billion dollar judgment against him. Um, Fox News had a an over billion dollar claim against. I'm sorry, Dominion Voting Systems, the voting machine companies, um, and uh, filed a defamation suit against Fox News for saying that their machines didn't. Um, you know, uh, were were used to perpetuate some kind of um, um, rigged election in the in the Trump Biden election, um, and um, Fox settled for eight hundred plus million dollars, and was potentially on the hook for more. And I think there's more lawsuits, more defamation lawsuits coming from another company. So we're talking about billions of dollars of awards from these um, defamation suits. Uh, the recent Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard suit. Um, I think Johnny Depp was awarded over $10 million from Amber Heard for defamation. So defamation is a real thing. Um, now, when you when you read the, 
the textbooks and you talk about intellectual property, it usually covers patents and copyrights and trademarks and trade secrets and the other special rights I mentioned before. It's rarely mentioned that defamation should be considered in the same league, but I don't see why they shouldn't because as I mentioned earlier about trademark, for trademark, you don't have to prove actual fraud. You don't even have to prove actual consumer confusion. You only have to prove likelihood of consumer confusion, and with the um, with this other right, which I didn't mention yet, um, trademark law in the U.S. and probably in many other countries has been amended to include what's called an anti-dilution right, which means the, the trademark holder can sue someone for tarnishing the value of their of their mark, even if there's no likelihood of consumer confusion. So you see, all these things show that when it comes down to it. Trademark is really not about consumer deception or consumer confusion or consumer fraud. It's really a reputation right. And this is like again, this I'm quoting uh, Dale Nance, who's a, a fairly mainstream law professor. He said trademark rights are closely but ambiguously related to preventing deception of the consumer, but it's ambiguous because you don't have to show deception or damages by the consumers. Um, and then in the I'm going to conclude, he says, in practice, trademarks are as much a protection of the holder's goodwill as a protection of consumers from deception. In other words, trademark rights protect for the trademark owner or holder the value of their reputation, which is what goodwill means, right? In an economic or a business setting, goodwill means this sort of uh, intangible value you have from your reputation, from the, your brand name. And here I have an uh, the objectivists, by the way, as sort of a subset or a weird cousin of libertarians, um, who are big defenders of intellectual property and defamation law, right? Because it all goes along with their sort of quasi um, uh, Lockean Marxian notion of labor. Like you have the right to uh, a property right in in things that you create that quote have value or or values as a noun. That you create, right? This is their their whole theory of rights, which I think is confused and kind of quasi-Marxian. Uh, so here's one objectivist uh, in an Ayn Rand forum named Steve Simpson. He says, libel laws are proper in my view. It's a complicated topic, but the way I think about it is you have a right to the value that you've created in your own reputation or in your brand, right? It took them years to make their reputation, so you – so." The ultimate issue is if you that if someone damages a value someone's created, like your reputation, it's almost an intellectual property right. <laughs> yeah, he's right. <laughs> like he's actually correct. The, the, so in my view, defamation law should be viewed as a type of intellectual property right because it's very similar to trademark. In fact, trademark and defamation should be merged together. They're both just a way that the law recognizes a right in your reputation. Which is an intangible thing, um, protected by a type of IP law, either defamation or trademark law. Um, let's see. Oh, that's the end of my slides. So, and one more thing I'll point out: um, um, Murray Rothbard was skeptical of of patent law, and he also had a great article debunking defamation law in his. Article uh, his chapter knowledge true and false in ethics of liberty. So uh, Rothbard understood exactly the problem with defamation law. 
uh, that you don't own a reputation because the reputation is just what other people think of you. And you don't own other people's brains or minds or bodies, so you, you you don't really have a right in what people think about you. So that's the problem with defamation law. Now, if he had understood that defamation and trademark law are basically the same thing, he would have opposed trademark law too, right? which is one of the three main types of IP. He also opposed patent law, which is the number one type of IP. Copyright, he said you could have copyright by contract. Now, I think he was wrong, confused on that. But my view is that if he had just said, you know, before he died in 95, before the big debate on IP really happened in libertarian circles, starting in around 1995, right when the internet was happening, right, right when Rothbard died, right when the internet happened is when the big debate on IP started happening with Wendy McElroy and then Tom Palmer, Sam Konkin, and then after that, Roderick Long and me and other people really started focusing on this issue and sorting it out. Um, I'm simply saying Rothbard made a slight misstep by thinking that a type of IP could be justified. He called it a common law copyright, which is not a good name because that name was already taken by some other doctrine of common law, which he didn't under he, he wasn't aware of a thing. But the point is he made a slight misstep. He was good on patents, he was good on defamation law. I think he would have easily been good on trademark law if he had seen the connection, and I think he would have ab abandoned this common law copyright idea uh, if he had had time to reconsider the sort of new work on all this stuff. Uh, th that's one reason I want people to understand that defamation is a type of IP because Rothbard was so good on defamation law that he should have been – he should have extended the reasoning there to all types of IP, and I think he would have if he had just lived you know, a little longer. Anyway, I'm done with my prepared talks, but I'd be happy to take any any questions. Uh, yes, I have uh, one question about this uh, 3D printers uh, case because uh, they are probably going to change the uh, future of the copyright in um, in the near like 10 or 20 years. How do you think they are going to affect copyright or the, are they going to uh, strengthen it or uh, diminish mostly because of its of the proliferation? Well, so um, I've, I've talked before about how I think that um, copyright – so I think 3D printers have more to do with patent than copyright. So uh, copyright has to do with, uh, with copying or reusing patterns of information, and the, the, the advent of the internet and encryption and digital – digitization of files and all, uh, torrenting and all this – has basically made copyright piracy impossible to stop. So yeah, you, you can use the law of copyright to go after big companies so they can maintain some control over it, but they can't stop piracy. It's impossible. So digital information has basically made the, the unreality and, un, and the unnatural aspects of copyright – more apparent and has made copyright very, very difficult to enforce, which is a good thing. So, in other words, copyright law is not going away, but it's it's easy to it's it's quite easy to evade it right now, which is a good thing. Um, I wish it were so easy to evade income tax. <laughs> um, now, patent law, I think something similar could happen if 
if if 3D printing matures, and the more that it matures, the more that you will be able to evade patent law. So yeah, you could easily just get an encrypted file and send it to the 3D printer in your basement or down the, you know some community groups 3D printer down the street and make a device without anyone's permission or knowledge. So I think that will you know I, I do think it may take several decades before it matures. But eventually, 3D printing should help us to um, evade um, patent law. Now, I will say that you know one problem with patent law and copyright law is that you know the interests that are behind them and the governments will, will use these laws to distort and impede and hamper the development of these technologies as long as possible. So I don't know if it takes 15, 20, 30 years to have 3D printing. Maybe it would it would have only taken half that time if not for government um, um, impediments to it. But I think it's coming no matter what. They can't they can slow it down, but they can't stop it. So I do have hope for three D printing. Um, hopefully, maybe in our maybe in your lifetime. <laughs> I see. Thank you. Uh, if we have any other questions about anything related to IP, I'm open to them now since we have little time. Um, anything I didn't cover or that I did or anything at all related to IP or IP policy? I've got a question. Yeah. Uh, one of my friends is um, – he's libertarian. I would say he's pretty solid on his understanding of all these things and uh, sees all the state interventions. Uh when he and he he writes books and when he puts them out he puts it with a copyright and you know i'm sure he would favor a voluntary system uh, over an involuntary one but what he says is um he thinks that in the absence of the state there would be uh, an elaborate system of trade secrets that would somehow be analogous to copyright in some way, so he doesn't have the hugest problem with just putting a copyright in his work. Right. Uh, what do you think of that? Well, for, so first of all, um, he's probably under a few misapprehensions about the system. Um, um, like, I think there's nothing there's nothing wrong with putting a copyright notice on your works. In fact, I think it's a good thing because um, if you have a work out there in public, let's say you want it to be shared or used the person that wants to copy it or put it in their new book or whatever they need to know who to contact for permission because we have a copyright system so if you put a copyright notice it only helps them to be to re to be reassured like they need they they mm. know they know who they need to contact to get permission if you find a work where the it's it's not clear who owns the copyright whether it's the publisher or some author that's dead or their heirs or who their heirs are then you you, you don't you can't even get permission because you don't know who to contact or who to trust. So there's nothing wrong with putting a notice. Um, now I, I know what he said. What he's saying is he's imagining sort of what what, what Rothbard and some of these other guys talked about. Um, well, what they say is that well, copyright is not a problem because okay, maybe the government doing it. In the way they're doing it, it's not the best way to do it, but it's just a rough approximation of what would happen on a free market from a contract-based system anyway. Mm -hmm. Now, there, 
they're wrong about that. Well, first of all, if they're right, they're right. Let's try it and see. Let's get rid of copyright. Mm -hmm. Let's get rid of copyright and see what would happen. But I can tell you that every defender of copyright would – who understands the, the nature of it would oppose that proposal. Like they don't think that a, a contract system could replace the copyright system that we have. That's why they want there to be a copyright act <laughs> because they know that it does things that you can't do by contract. So these mm -hmm. these people that say, oh well, it's just like a it's just like a a legislative version of of, of what you would have by 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 contract anyway. Well then, well, then why don't the interest behind it want to just go back to contract law and see what happens? Because they they sort of know, right? And the reason they they know is that there is a difference in the law between what we call real rights or in rem rights in, in Latin or Roman mm -hmm. law, mm -hmm. which is a right to a real thing, and in personum rights or contract rights. Let's let's write personal rights between people. Um so you and I can have a contract where I agree, you know, if you give me your proprietary information, I agree to keep it secret. Like I'm going to be your partner. You're going to cut me in, and you're going to let me have my own little factory. Like uh, maybe I'm a uh, uh, what do you call them? People have a chain of restaurants, a a, a franch a franchise or whatever. Um, but I have to keep it secret, right? So I have mm -hmm. a special duty to keep the knowledge secret because I agreed to it. Mm -hmm. Like there's privative contract. But that that doesn't affect the world in general. Now, if if mm -hmm. if you own your car, that's an in rim right, a real right. I'm not entitled to steal that car, even if I don't have a contract with you, because it's a good mm -hmm. it's, it's a good against the world. So real rights, we call it real. The word, real doesn't mean not real. It means like uh, affecting arrest or a thing, a physical, tangible thing. So property rights are good against the world. You don't need other people's agreement for them to be good. Mm -hmm. And what happens is you can have private law between two or more parties because of a contract, and that affects only them. And then everyone else on the outside is not bound by that because they're not in what's called privity of contract. Okay, uh, I'm going to get to a more detailed answer in just a second, but um, uh, the point is there's a difference between contractual rights between a group of people and in rem rights good against the world. Patent and copyrights turn – they establish in-rem rights good against the world, but the, the, the thing is, like I said, the right way to characterize them as they are um, – they're really negative easements. But negative easements mm -hmm. are also contractual in personam rights, which are fine as long as they're agreed to by the parties. But the law mm – -hmm. the, the government just says, no, you have this right even though the guy burdened by the right didn't agree to it. So they converted mm -hmm. what should be a personal right or a contract right into a into a real right, and that's the problem with it, right? That's the problem with it. Now, what he's imagining is something like this. Um, okay, Kinsella gets his way. There's no copyright in the world, but John Grisham or who, who's a, you know some popular uh, uh, J.K. Rowling writes Harry Potter number eight, and she goes to Amazon and she says, hey. Here's my book. I'm going to give it to you, but only if you sign an agreement with me agreeing to keep it private and also – not private, but but only to publish it to customers who sign an agreement with you and with me that they will not copy it either. So the idea is that mm -hmm. you can you, – you're they're imagining this worldwide web of cartelized type agreements where you can't escape from it. Like everyone's everyone's 
enmeshed in this terms of service kind of in the world where mm-hmm. it's effectively the same as a copyright or a patent system. Um, so if I go buy a book, if I go buy Harry Potter number eight from Amazon for ten dollars, Amazon can only give it to me if I sign a, a contract saying, "Oh, I agreed up to, to J.K. Rowling's private copyright regime," something like that, right? And so in this way, everyone is covered by it. But the problem is that's not true because if once I have, it's because of the nature of information. That could be true mm-hmm. for physical things, which have an, uh, an identifiable owner, but information doesn't have an owner. So if I copy if, – if I buy the Harry Potter book number eight, and I agree to keep it private and not to copy it, okay, then I have a contract with Amazon or with, Harry, with, with J.K. Rowling not to copy it. And if I copy it, then I may be in breach of contract, and I could be sued for a lot of money. But okay, so what? What if I do it anyway? If I if I if I digitize the book and I scan it and I put it on on the internet, and so a billion people tomorrow can access the 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 ASCII text file of Harry Potter mm-hmm. number eight, then none of those people have signed a contract with Harry Potter mm-hmm. or with Amazon. Mm-hmm. So the the right that J.K. Rowling or Amazon would have against me doesn't do them any good. They can. I mean, and, and plus, I don't have millions of dollars they can get from me anyway. I'm just some guy on the internet who bought a book mm-hmm. for $10, which mm-hmm. again is another problem with this idea. If, if, if my choice is I want the, the latest Harry Potter book, and my choice is to buy it for $10 from Amazon and to sign a contract obligating me to pay millions of dollars if I use it or learn from it or I'm influenced by it in the wrong way. That's like – that's a cost. So I'm paying $10 plus I'm obligating myself to a potential lifetime of bankruptcy. So mm-hmm. what would so I do? I-, I would go get the pirated copy, and I would not sign the contract. Mm-hmm. So the thing is that these contract walls can never work very well because the only people that would sign it would be your loyal fans, and either you're mm-hmm. asking them to sign a minor a contract saying, okay, if I copy it, I owe you $100 or $10, but not a million. But mm-hmm. if it's only $100 or $10, then someone's going to just pay the fine and do it, and then the information's free. So these these contractual schemes can never work with information. This is what these people don't understand. They don't understand that there's something about the nature of knowledge. Once it's public, it's public. You cannot mm-hmm. put the genie back in the bottle. You know, if I have a new mousetrap design like an invention, if I want to sell it, like I might be able to make – or a new plow, let's say an improved design for a, a plow for my farm. I can make this plow and give it to, to two or three of my close relatives, and maybe we can plow our farms more efficiently. Okay, that's fine. But if I want to – I can keep a secret that way if I want to. But if I want to like profit from the plow design, I've got to sell the plow. But when I sell this plow… Everyone sees, oh, Kinsella's new plow has a great new feature, and so very soon I'll have imitators. That's the mm-hmm. price I have to pay for selling it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It, once the information is out there, it's out there. There's no way to keep the genie in the bottle. So mm-hmm. um, I think that the people that think that you can duplicate um, anything like an in-rim system or a real right system of mm-hmm. protection of information, which is what patent and copyright do… … with a contractual system or, or just wrong. 
but again, mm-hmm. I'd be willing to, uh, to I'd be willing to uh, get rid of patent and copyright, and and let sure. people just use private contracts. But again, every every advocate of patent and copyright would oppose with horror the idea mm-hmm. of getting rid of the patent and copyright system and replacing it with contract because they they understand like I do that you can't simulate um, these systems. You know, it would be like saying. You could simulate the tax system, or um, or or the Americans with Disabilities Act with with private contract. It just doesn't make any sense. Or the drug mm-hmm. war. How could you simulate the drug war with a private contract system? Doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I mean, he's not here to talk for himself. But if I could, I, I mean, I've just thought about this issue and whether it would really happen that way. And what I've imagined is, you know, maybe. Let's imagine that there's no copyright law or no state. And, you know, let's let's take the modern examples of like movies and streaming services. Yeah. And let's say that Netflix makes a movie and, uh, you know, they want it to only be shown on Netflix so that people have to subscribe to be able to watch the movie. Um so they want to at least guarantee against like Amazon and Hulu hosting mm-hmm. that. Um, so, you know, these major streaming platforms might sign an agreement among themselves to not uh, use each other's content uh, and honor that. And they can't really stop anyone from just downloading it and pirating it. But maybe they would satisfy themselves that, you know, all other major services um which is all they can do right now right because right now they can only stop the major services because there's always there's always right. this piracy going well, on and, in the background right and that's my observation is that they've kind of given up really trying to stop people like individuals from torrenting movies and just watching them themselves um yeah. so like the enforcement wouldn't really be against individual people it would be against some company that started to uh, I, I could imagine issue yeah, other people's I, stuff in. Well, let me point out one thing. So, so the government laws have blocked various things companies could try to do. Um, so you're talking about a cartel, basically, right? Which, I, as a right. libertarian, we oppo- we oppose antitrust law. So we have no mm-hmm. problem with cartels, but the government has done their best. So the government is schizophrenic. So the government grants monopolies in the in the in the <laughs> form of FDA protection for new pharmaceuticals and in the form of patents and mm-hmm. in the form of, of copyright. And then they have an antitrust or an anti-competition or anti-monopoly law, which says it's illegal to have monopolies. So the government is completely incoherent and schizophrenic. But so for for example, back in the um I can't remember the time frame. Back in the fifties or sixties, whenever it was, um, there were these sort of quasi-oligopolistic cartels or conglomerates. These these agreements between the uh, the movie theaters and mm-hmm. the government broke them up under the um, I think the Clayton Antitrust Trust Act or the Sermon. Mm-hmm. One, one of the so you know they so like everything you would want to do. Like so, your proposal is is not unreasonable. Like you could have. Major book book publishing associations, or or movie companies, or the music industry groups, or whatever you could have them try to come together to somehow 
you know, uh, uh, put some limits on leaks of the major, mm -hmm. you know, things. Maybe that could work. But the government mm -hmm. would have to allow you to try, but they wouldn't even allow companies to try right now. So the government would basically outlaw attempts to do a private solution and then claim <laughs> that, well, because people can't make copyright work privately, we have to give it to you legislatively. It's like, yeah, well, the, the reason it uh -huh. can't work privately is because you're not – you won't – it's because you allow – you outlaw cartels and, and you have your antitrust law. So we should get rid of the antitrust law, the FDA. Mm -hmm. And copyright, and and let's see what would happen. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think we would see something like. I, I still can't imagine a system like. So let's say we have this system like your friend is imagining, or you're imagining, six or seven or ten big companies all come together. They kind of roughly respect it, sort of like OPEC does now with with the you know there's some cheating, but they roughly respect the the oil limitations and all this. Um, you know, there's really in the end, there's nothing to. To stop some Chinese or Indian upstart company from saying, "We don't care. We're gonna we're gonna right. scrape everything and we're gonna do a nice curated thing. You pay us two bucks a month and we're gonna mm -hmm. give you everything you want anyway." Maybe mm -hmm. it won't have all the features. You know, it won't be as nice. But some people would use that. But like they use torrenting right now. I mean, most mm -hmm. people don't use torrenting. I think, but or I don't say most people. There's probably lots of people who do. But people who can afford a, a ten dollar a month or whatever it is for Netflix, they just do that. Because it's easier. Mm -hmm. They get all the extra mm -hmm. features. They get the subtitles. They don't have to worry about the uh, corruption. But if the price gets too high, they might go to torrenting. So maybe they, you'd have these mm -hmm. intermediate services. So I, I don't know. I don't think it would mm -hmm. be like the same as we have now is the point. It, it may mm – -hmm. there may be ways that you can – come together to have agreements that would do some some of the things that copyright does now I, mm -hmm. and and we libertarians don't oppose that as long as it's done voluntarily and by contract mm -hmm. okay all right well unless there's anything else i think we'll stop it today um this may be the end of my little three-part series, unless anyone can think of, and you can email me later or send me comments when I post this. Uh, if there's anything else I could cover as a practical thing, be happy to do it. Um, you know, There's other practical things I do as a lawyer, like licensing and contracts and that kind of stuff, but I think that's enough practical stuff for now. Uh, the rest of my material is all on the normative and policy and law stuff. But uh, anyway, glad you – Point turned in. I hope everybody enjoyed it. If you have any questions, feel free to let me know. Thanks, everybody. Great. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.